Welcome, folks. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Matthew. I'm the associate pastor here, and we're very glad you've joined us today. Uh, we've been doing the book of Luke for a little while now. I've been kind of, it's a bit breathless looking at the pace at which we've gone through Luke's gospel. We're up to, we're finishing chapter seven, and we've done like six talks, and it's got heaps and heaps of detail. Um, I think the thing that uh, is most helpful with the sermons here is the big picture of what we're communicating. Hopefully, you get a feel for what Luke's about, so that when you go back to read it yourself, you, you have more of an idea, you have more comprehension of, of what's going on in the big picture. I think that's the most helpful approach. So, uh, we're going to get some. Big themes out of today, so we'll just start with the biggest theme. <clears throat> Jesus was a great teacher, right? right. So what? that's what people said. Um, he's a great teacher. Uh, so what subject did he teach? You've got, you got to get this right, because people all have ideas on this. Um, Jesus actually only had one thing you should know, so to speak. He did. Uh, there's only one topic he spoke about, and all the other stuff hung off it very directly, sometimes more directly than the stuff that you and I hang off our one thing you should know. But friends, it's worth being clear, what was Jesus on about? What subject did he teach? Because I guarantee you'll have a friend or relative at some point try to tell you who knows nothing about Jesus, but happy to assert, here's what Jesus was really on about. He was really on about love or tolerance and not judging other people's beliefs or something like that. And, Almost always, their version of love, tolerance, and not judging is completely different to Jesus' version. Uh, and they're not the main thing Jesus was on about anyway. Those things, Jesus' version of those, are attached to the main thing he was on about. The one thing you should know that Jesus had preached about endlessly was the kingdom of God. Literally, every single sermon he preached was about the kingdom of God. Uh, he didn't preach about anything but the kingdom of God. All his parables were about the kingdom of God. His private teaching to his disciples were about the kingdom of God. And even his ethical teaching about how you should live was about how you should live as a member of the kingdom of God. It was all about the kingdom of God. Uh, turn back to chapter 4, and we'll just, just see an example of that. It's just a summary of what he was on about. Chapter 4, verse 42. Uh, just get a feel for what's going on in Luke's gospel. At daybreak, Jesus went to solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. It's pretty clear, isn't it? That's why I was sent. I was sent to talk about the kingdom of God. All right, so what's the kingdom of God? Uh, the kingdom of God is what it sounds like. <laughs> it's a kingdom ruled by God. Uh, more specifically than that, this kingdom fills all of creation. Uh, it doesn't allow any other kingdoms to exist in opposition or alongside it. You're either in the kingdom or you're not part of God's creation anymore. Uh, it's free from sin, death, and everything associated with them. Basically, the kingdom of God is all of the good stuff that God promised in the Old Testament sort of combined in one phrase, kingdom of God. All the good stuff that God's promised, that's the kingdom of God. It's the sum total of that. Um, simple timeline shows you uh, the idea there, the coming kingdom of God. The Bible tells its timeline from left to right. The Bible calls the age we live in the present evil age where people uh, live under the curse of sin and death and do what they like and defy, defy God and so on. But there's going to come a day of intervention, the line there in the middle, where God comes and changes everything and replaces the old way with a new order. And the Bible has lots of words for the new order. It could be called the age to come because it's a new age, it's a new thing in the future. It's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the world to come, new heavens and new earth. It's all basically the same thing, though. You get the basic idea, though. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus came talking about the future. But not just about the future. 
uh, his message was basically the kingdom of God is so close, you better respond to it right now because he was there and he's kind of at the middle of the kingdom of God. He's there, the kingdom of God is closed, therefore. So you live here. You live right in front of that line. You better respond to the kingdom of God and the message of the kingdom of God because it's close. Heaven's coming to evade, invade earth and take earth over. And everybody who's not on heaven's side when heaven arrives is not going to survive that process. You best join heaven's side whilst you have the chance. So that's what Jesus was on about. What subject did he teach? The kingdom of God's coming. Join the side. Live as a member of the kingdom now. Repent. Join God. Join heaven's side now. Now, it's a closely related question. Uh, What was Jesus' preferred title for himself? So Jesus has lots of titles, right? Like um, descriptions of who he is, formal titles and that sort of thing. Uh, Can you rattle a few off now? Son of man. Son of God. Messiah. Christ. Yep. Um, Jesus' favorite one is a bit surprising. Because uh, he only really used one of them for most of his ministry. He owned all of those explicitly. But publicly, if you were to go to a random sermon in 30 AD, you'd hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, and chances are, teachers, you call him, hear him called teacher, yeah, definitely, but uh, it's not really a title uniquely, yeah. <laughs> you might hear Son of God, Christ Messiah, King of Israel. It's all a bit confusing because they almost mean the same thing. Son of God, not quite. See, Christ, Messiah, King of Israel mean the same thing. Um, Greek, Christos, Christ, Hebrew, Messiah, Messiah, uh, King of Israel is English. It's just the King of Israel. It gets confusing because Son of God sometimes means King of Israel because the kings of Israel were called Sons of God. But it gets confusing because the actual Son of God, as in the Son of God whose father is actually God, came to earth and became the Son of God, as in the Son of God, King of Israel. And so the Son of God now is always the Son of God in the other sense. And so sometimes when you say Jesus is the Son of God, they mean he's the king, and sometimes they mean he's the Son of God, and it's ambiguous. But anyway, he didn't use that title of himself ever in public ministry. In fact, the demons used that of him and said, we know who you are, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah, and he said, you are not to tell anyone that. His disciples next week will discover he's the, son of, he's the Messiah. He'll say, do not tell anyone that. The time for that has not come out yet. It hasn't come yet. At his uh, trial, he'll claim that he's the Son of God, but that's not his favourite word for himself. Title for himself in public ministry. Suffering servant, he came to die for the sins of the world, but even when he tried to tell his disciples that one, they didn't really get it until after he rose from the dead, so it's not the one. Lord, well, it's not the one he used for himself. It's true after his ascension. So Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, at which point he became Lord of all things. Now, before he's Lord of all things in that sense, before he goes through cross-resurrection ascension, He's not Lord in the same sense yet. He's about to be Lord. He's destined to be Lord. And that's what his favourite title is actually about. His favourite title is Son of Man, the one that Russell mentioned. Got it first go. Amazing. (laughs) This is what you, chances are, offhand comment, Jesus say, the Son of Man did this. He's talking about himself. That's his title for himself uh, in public ministry. Now, what on earth is Son of Man about? Well, it's kind of a clever title because it, He uses it very early in his ministry, and it's kind of ambiguous. See, it's kind of what it sounds like, a mere human being, son of man, ordinary human being, right? What it sounds like. Um, So if you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll hear God refer to the prophet Ezekiel as son of man all the time. And all he's saying is, hey, you ordinary human in comparison to me, almighty God, like that kind of idea. Uh, However, there's a famous son of man in the Old Testament too. The Son of Man, not just a Son of Man. The Son of Man is in Daniel chapter 7, and it's a really strange passage until Jesus comes. Uh, Because Daniel's a prophet several hundred years before Jesus, 
Here's a vision of the kingdom of God and how it comes about. The kingdom of God comes about, there's basically a vision of uh, the rulers of the world doing awful things and they're portrayed as big beasts doing terrible things. And God comes and strips them all of, of all their authority and power to bring in his kingdom. And he's about to bring in the kingdom of God in this vision. And then this happens in verse 13. And it's completely from left field. You never see it coming. In my vision at night, I looked. And then before me was one like a son of man. So an ordinary looking human being, a mere human being. Coming with the clouds of heaven, though. So he's coming, approaching God in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's just a term for God, and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, mere human being, son of man, and then the son of man, the one Daniel Seven's talking about, what mere human being is that? Jesus' favourite term for himself is son of man. And what he's talking about is his destiny. He's saying, grubby Galilean peasant in front of you, I'm the son of man. My destiny is I will walk into heaven. I will stand before God, the Father, and he will hand me everything. That's That's what he meant every time he said son of man. And so you've got our timeline again there, and this figure there who's got a crown on his head and is in charge of the age to come is the Son of Man. It's Jesus. And so incidentally, just you know, a point that might help you your Bible reading, you notice they never called Jesus Son of Man after he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven because that title's replaced by Lord because Son of Man kind of means ascended Lord. Your future is to be the Lord. Once he becomes Lord, they don't call him Son of Man anymore. Anyway, that's just by the by. Uh, so last week, Stuart pointed out lots of ways in which Jesus expressed his authority that God gave him. So just turn back, we'll just see, I want you to see this theme authority, because that's what the Son of Man is about. The one who's destined to rule all things, and uh, the one who has authority, even in the present, to bring the kingdom of God. So look at chapter 4, verse 31, and you just see this theme of authority. Uh, Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching, because his words had authority. Down to verse 36, he uh, threw out, cast out a demon, verse 36. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out and news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. But you ain't seen nothing yet. The big one, what was the one that Stuart emphasised last week, the final one? It's the one where he explicitly says son of man for the first time in, in this gospel. Chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus heals a paralysed man who's lowered through the roof. Uh, we'll go past verse 20. He, he says to the guy, friends, your sins are forgiven. And all the teachers of the law are thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who has authority to do that, honestly? Who has authority to forgive sins on God's behalf? Verse 24, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See, the Son of Man, his, his destiny is to own everything in heaven, to be Lord of all things. And even in the present, he has the power to bring about the kingdom of God and to forgive people so they can be part of the kingdom of God. So, what subject did Jesus teach about? Kingdom of God. What was Jesus' preferred title for himself? Son of man, the one destined to be the king of the kingdom of God. Remember that next time somebody tries to tell you about what Jesus was really on about? You know, Jesus was really about not judging other people's beliefs. Really? Well, Jesus is the judge of all things and he inherits all things and you better submit to him because he's going to judge you and he's in charge of the world to come. Like, that's what Jesus was on about. You might want to 
think about how you'd say that in actual context. Depends who you're talking to. So through all that, Jesus became wildly popular. Uh, Miracles, healings, unique preaching ministry, lots of people are going to follow you, right? Uh, Lots of opposition too. And from Luke chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus is engaged in three controversies that are kind of define the direction of the rest of his ministry in a way. Because from now on, in the background, there'd be opposition to him that would lead to him being killed. From verse 33 to 39, controversy number one. It's controversies with the religious teachers, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They're just uh, the pinnacle of Jewish religious tradition and observance. They have lots of traditions and things like that. And uh, they are the respected people in the society. And they're the people Jesus is conflicting with. Controversy number one, Jesus, you and your disciples aren't religiously observant enough. They don't follow our strict traditions of fasting at certain times. Jesus says, I am bringing something so new that you can't fit me into your box. Uh, something new has come. The kingdom of God is here in me. Throw out your customs and follow me. That's pretty insulting unless you believe it's true. Controversy number two, from chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. Uh, Israel had a really good God-given law called the Sabbath. The Sabbath is don't work on Saturday. Uh, it protects the poor. It makes life enjoyable. It imitates God because God rested on the seventh day of create, after creating the world. Uh, But the Pharisees have developed traditions too, because after all, what does it mean to not work? We best write a long textbook on what it means to not work, and they did. Uh, And so read chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, and you'll see the extraordinary things that uh, the Pharisees would define as work. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them together in their hands, and eat the kernels. So it's a pretty casual walk by corn, eat some corn, uh, or grain, or whatever it was. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Why are they working on the Sabbath? It's just extraordinary. Their definition of work, that's that's work. Jesus' answer basically is, read your Bible. Uh, King David broke some food laws at a particular time, particular place. I mean, you're being stricter than God's law, basically. Um, But he doesn't end there. Have a look at verse 5, because he's got big claims to make. He's not just trying to win, so I'm following the Bible and you're not. There's bigger things at stake than that. Verse 5, then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. There's something so new here with the kingdom of God. The king of the kingdom of God, or the destined king of the kingdom of God, is with you. That means you best listen to him, because he's in charge of the law of God. And so they should listen to him, but instead they plot against him. Controversy number three, healing on the Sabbath. It's a very sinister plot. Uh, Jesus healed anyone who came to him in need. Anyone. Um, And so they thought, okay, we'll take advantage of his popularity and his generosity to people. We're going to place a crippled man uh, in his path on the Sabbath, on his way to synagogue, and they did that. Uh, And if he heals him, clearly he's breaking the Sabbath. Because, I mean, healing somebody of a crippled hand has to be work, and he's doing it publicly, and we've got an excuse to accuse him then. Jesus is rightly disgusted by their plan and unveils it, quote, straight away. If you look at chapter 6, verse 8, he's on his way to Sabbath, Verse 8, he says, Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Do you think God's law is on about promoting life and health and the good of his people and protecting them? Or do you think it's so that rich people can oppress poor people and pass them by with no compassion in their hearts? There's not much they could say to that, so they didn't. 
Jesus healed the man anyway, and the Pharisees were filled with absolute rage that their plot. Verse 11 there, it says the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious. The word is like they were just irrational, bent over with rage that Jesus has got past this. And from now on, they're going to be plotting against his life. So Jesus got on with his mission. He prayed for a night to his father, uh, presumably for guidance on the next day's crucial work, because the next day he went and picked 12 guys that we call apostles. He had lots of followers, and he picked, handpicked 12 of them and said, you guys are going to be my apostles. It basically means the sent ones. Uh, and they're the foundational leaders of Jesus' church. Um, they're the guys who wrote most of the New Testament, and, well, they were directly or indirectly responsible for all of the New Testament. The 12 apostles, very, very important foundational leaders of Jesus' people, and they would pass on Jesus' teaching with his authority, and that's why we read the New Testament. Uh, Jesus took them to a flat plain. Crowds upon crowds followed him because he's healing people, but he began to teach his apostles, and he gave them a sermon. What was his sermon about? The kingdom of God. (laughs) His sermon was about the kingdom of God. Uh, if you're wondering why the sermon he gives now, it's a sermon on a plane. If you're wondering why it uh, sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, it's got a lot of the same material. It could be because he preached more than one sermon and reused his material occasionally. Stuart, I'll just have a word to the preacher in the room. Hey, Jesus recycled material. That means weekend too. Amen, glory to Jesus. I just thought that was you know, just worth saying. Uh, the sermon, this sermon, the Sermon on the Plane from verse 17 of chapter 6. The sermon is about what it looks like to live as a member of the kingdom of God whilst we still live in this world. Uh, Give you the diagram again. What it's saying is, you live here on this, this side. However, if you belong to the kingdom of God, you belong over here, live the lifestyle of this place whilst you're still here. The sermon is about what that looks like in practice, basically. Uh, you can read the sermon now, and I think it makes a fair bit of sense just with that that, that sort of framework for it. Um, we at Oran Park at New Life Anglican Church uh, like to talk about being apprentices to Jesus. Uh, it's another way to talk about discipleship or following Jesus. See, Jesus' followers are his students to learn the way of Jesus. Uh, a lot of people I meet, uh, not accusing anyone in this room, but I've met a lot of people who treat their apprenticeships or courses of study like the point is to graduate with the least amount of work possible. You know, like people who say, I got 53% in the exam, I did 2% too much work kind of thing. Uh, have you met people like that? I have anyway. Uh, I, I might have been one at one point. Uh, the goal of Jesus' apprenticeship is exactly the opposite of that. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 40, and you'll see the goal of your apprenticeship to Jesus if you're a follower of him. And we use this in our partnership course. You may have, may have heard it before. This is the goal of being an apprentice to Jesus. The student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained, the end of the apprenticeship, will be like their teacher. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, uh, your goal is to be like Jesus and to not be satisfied with anything less than that. Uh, Jesus expects all of us to be utterly devoted to his cause. Utterly devoted. Uh, and that will lead to suffering and difficulty in the world. We've already seen that series a bunch of times. Uh, the basic uh, way we think about the Christian life is we are people who eagerly wait for the future salvation God brings. See, our, the thing we want in the future, I mean, it's on the screen still. We are waiting for that. 
Here is not good. <laughs> the world in which we are living now is full of sin and injustice and death. We are eagerly waiting for the day when God will bring his kingdom, when we'll have every good thing and nothing that's bad. But the kingdom of God in the present forces a choice on you. It forces a choice on where you place your hopes and dreams. The question Jesus is going to ask in the Sermon on the Plain is, do you long for the kingdom of God to come or are you investing in the present instead? Are you invested in your expectations for what Jesus will give you in the future when the kingdom arrives? Or are you actually invested in your expectations for what this life can give you instead? And it's really black and white, the way Jesus presents it. It's one or the other. Choose where your hopes and dreams are. Is it the kingdom of God to come? Well, invest in it. If it's for the present, invest in it. But you won't have the kingdom of God to come. It's one or the other. And so the really strange things that we read that don't kind of make much sense initially, you see the blesseds and the woes, uh, the first bit, looking at verse 20, he starts the sermon off and says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed who are hungry now, for you'll be satisfied, and so on. It's really strange. And then the second bit, it says the opposite. But woe to you who are rich, the people who are well off in life. Woe to you who are fed now, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep, and so on. Jesus literally says, uh, it's literal, you are in the best ideal situation in life, you are blessed, if you are poor, hungry, crying, hated, excluded, and rejected because of Jesus. That's what he says. But when you are rich, well-fed, constantly happy, and nobody has a bad thing to say about you, then your life is tragedy beyond reckoning. Why on earth? Because the kingdom of God's coming. Because the future is the thing we hope for, and that's where the, thing we, the things we want, the things we look forward to aren't now, they're then. And so Jesus' apprentices will recognise that and throw themselves into serving the cause of God's kingdom now, even to our own detriment. So the way it fits is, left-hand side, he describes the, the first line of each of the Beatitudes there. He describes characteristics of Jesus' apprentices and the reward they'll get when it comes. See, the first bit's the present, the other bit's the future. So the first one, blessed are you who are poor now, that's in this world, for yours is the kingdom of God in the future. Blessed are you who are hungry now because you'll be satisfied when the kingdom of God comes. And it's the opposite for other people who don't follow Jesus. Because when the kingdom of God arrives, Jesus' apprentices will possess the kingdom, be satisfied, will laugh with joy, be rewarded more than they deserve or can dream. Now, friends, it's really important. How do you imagine heaven? It's really important we have a decent idea about imagining heaven. Uh, we're so often held back by childish ideas that we don't look forward to it, I think. I know it's been a problem for me at times. It's really important to fix that because our expectation of what it will be like has got to be one of our greatest motivations, one of the things that make us look forward to it and live for it. I mean, what will it be like to have what Jesus talks about, to be utterly satisfied forever? What will that be like? What will it be like to experience joy that is no longer in constant danger of ending? What will it be like to enjoy every good thing God has to give with none of the bad? What will that be like? Friends, only by being captivated by that hope will you be truly motivated to be a disciple of Jesus, to be an apprenticeship, to apprentice to Jesus, to strive after his kingdom now. Because you've got to see God's kingdom, you've got to see the kingdom of God in such a way that you desperately want it. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours are the kingdom of God. You'll be satisfied, you'll laugh you will possess the kingdom of God.
And then there's the contrast in verse 24. It's just the opposite. Contrast people who live, characteristics of those rejecting Jesus in the present, that they just use their money in themselves and they live for now. And it's all they have. That's why they live for now. Friends, I mean this literally and it sounds really strange. Pity the poor fool who is merely rich, who is merely comfortable, happy, and has a wonderful reputation. Pity that poor fool, because that is all they've got. That's what Jesus is saying. And in the light of eternity, that is nothing. And in the light of the judgment of God to come, that is scary. Why would you be preoccupied with such small, petty, temporary things as riches, comfort, happiness, wonderful reputation when the kingdom of God is coming? This is what Jesus is preaching. Brothers and sisters, and here is the lie that Satan wants us to believe. You can have it both ways. That's the lie he wants you to believe. You can have the blessings in the present and the blessings of the future. You don't have to suffer for Jesus. You don't have to sacrifice your time, talents and treasure to serve him. You don't have to pursue your apprenticeship to Jesus. That's the lie Satan wants you to believe. You can have both blessings now and blessings in the future. And friends, that is precisely how Satan attempts to drag people away from the faith. And I've seen it time and time again. And it's always that. I can have both. I can have Jesus. I can, I can look forward to the kingdom of God and I can look forward to now and make myself comfortable and happy and now and just live for myself. It doesn't end well. And friends, in Australia, it's going to be an ongoing challenge for us. I'm challenged as I read it this week because we are the richest people in history. And Jesus said in Luke 12, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And so Jesus is going to keep confronting us with a question that we ask ourselves at this church. It's on our brochure. It's, it's, the Sermon on the Mount drives this question. How is the kingdom of God shaping your time, talents and treasure? It's a deliberately strong statement. Shaping, uh, it's not saying, are you tacking Jesus onto your already busy life? It's saying, how is the kingdom of God determining the shape of your life? How is the kingdom of God defining your aspirations in life? How is it expressed in real, down-to-earth, get-your-hands-dirty, doing things for Jesus? and for his concerns in life, rather than your own. One of my favourite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. It's actually a book. I haven't read the whole book because it's very complicated and long. But the movie simplifies it for my brain. Uh, It simplifies it and it actually makes up a character to get some of the characters from the book and make them one person to make the story simpler. Uh, and the character that they made up for this particular version of the movie is the one I want to talk about today. His name's uh, Jacopo. See, the Count of Monte Cristo is about Edmond Dantes. He's a French sailor who is wrongly imprisoned for 13 years in an isolated prison, which is gruesome, called uh, Chateau d'If, something like, I think I'm saying it right. How do you pronounce French spelling on a page, honestly? Uh, he escapes, he ends up on a beach where smugglers are discussing what to do with one of their men, one of the smuggling crew, who was keeping some of the loot for himself. Uh, that's Jacopo. Um, they decide they'll get Edmund, this guy that's washed up on shore, and Jacopo to have a knife fight, and the winner can have a spot on the crew, and the crew can have some entertainment in the meantime watching the loser die. Uh, it's pretty horrible. Edmund quickly gets Jacopo on the ground, a knife at his throat, but he asks the captain to let Jacopo live, and the captain allows it. And there's this moment in the film, straight after that, where Jacopo grabs Edmund's like, collar and pulls him down, and he says, I am your man forever. He knows his life's just been spared. He says, I am your man forever. 
And for the rest of the movie, he is. Whatever Edmund's endeavour, Jacobo faithfully serves his cause. Basically, every single thing he does is literally for the cause that Edmund's after, not after Jacobo's cause. Edmund's cause is now Jacobo's cause, and it works out really well for Jacobo. Because you see, at the beginning of the movie, Jacobo's on the left, uh, Edmund's on the right. Uh, He's very, very poor. Uh, But the story is he finds a treasure, Edmund finds a treasure, and Jacopo's still at his side when he does, faithfully serving his cause. So there's a time where he's poor, but there comes a time when Edmund is rich and Jacopo is still right there by his side, enjoying all the good things that Edmund now possesses. And friends, that's the Christian life. Uh, In this world, Jesus was poor and persecuted, and he lived promoting a gospel that people didn't want to hear because he knew riches were in the kingdom of heaven in the future. And his disciples do the same thing. They do Jacobo. They hang by his side, do what he does, and promote the kingdom of God. So we wait for our wealth. We can't have it beforehand because we look for it there in the future. As so the question is, how is the kingdom of God shaping your time, talents, and treasure? Because we can't have it both ways. That's what faithfully waiting for the kingdom of God looks like. I'll leave you to read the rest of the Sermon on the Plain for yourself because I think it makes a great deal of sense with that background. But I want us to move forward to chapter 7 because Jesus continued his ministry of healing and teaching and his fame grew and John the Baptist, who you might remember, heard about him and got a bit confused. Uh, If you remember a few weeks ago, he was the guy who got Israel prepared for the coming of Jesus and identified Jesus to them. He said, this guy is bringing the kingdom of God, this guy is the judge of the world. And people knew that and, 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 and people responded to Jesus. It worked. I mean, the, the last bit of the reading we read, verse 29 to 30, talk about people prepared for Jesus. Uh, verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptised by John. They'd been prepared. John has done his job. Uh, but then it says the Pharisees who rejected John rejected Jesus too. Now, John knew what it meant to give everything in this world to serve Jesus. He ended up in prison for it. And now he's in prison wondering what on earth is going on because he's hearing what Jesus is doing, healing people, and he says, I've been telling people the day of judgment's coming. Are you the guy or are we waiting for somebody else? I mean, what on earth is going on? Look at verse 18 of chapter 7. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them he sent to the Lord to ask, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Friends, the Bible has a lot to say about the judgment of God uh, and it's, it should be a right cause of fear and urgency in proclaiming the gospel to other people. Uh, if you're reading our reading plan, you would have read the book of Nahum this week. Um, Nahum chapter 1. Uh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Uh, he is slow to anger but great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries them up. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? John believes Jesus is the judge. He's come to do that. He's going, where's the judgment of God? I'm actually upset because people are being healed instead. It seems to be what's going on. Now, John isn't being horrible at that point, but he sees a world filled with injustice and he knows that time's come for an end and he wonders why it's not happening. Uh, he's right, Jesus will judge the world. Friends, when you read about the judgment of God in the Bible, that's Jesus' job. It's part of what it means to be the Son of Man. All judgment has been given to the Son, is what Jesus says in John chapter 5, to the Son of Man. But John was very, very wrong about the timing, what Jesus had come to do first, and praise God that he was. 
verse 21. At the very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And what Jesus has done is describe what he's doing, but he's done it in the language of all the best bits of the book of Isaiah. Uh, he's just quoted the book of Isaiah, John, quite a bit. Um, Isaiah 35, when God comes to judge, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy, the dead will live, the sovereign lords appointed me to preach good news to the poor. These, these are Isaiah's prophecies about what Jesus will do. And it mentions salvation and judgment in one breath because Jesus came to do both. But the timing is different. See, his first coming is come to offer salvation, to offer the way into the kingdom of God. And in the middle, there's a time of amnesty where people can respond to him with faith and enter into that kingdom, which is the time we're in now. And then his second coming will be to be the judge of the world. And if it's a time of amnesty... That's the thing we need to be devoting our time, talents and treasure to. The mission that Jesus has got, holding off the kingdom of God so that people can enter into it. Friends, I just want to leave you with two questions as we get into 2014. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus' return? Are you eagerly waiting for it? Do you want it? (laughs) And if you are, can anyone else tell... I think that's what Jesus is saying. You're eagerly waiting the kingdom of God. Can anyone else tell? How's that expressed in your life? How's that making you different? How are you being Jacopo living for the aspirations of Edmund? How are you being an apprentice to Jesus living for the aspirations of Jesus in this world? That's the question. Or the hard point that Jesus has to make is here. Are you believing the devil's lie and believing you can have it both ways? That should ring in our ears. How about we pray for God to help us? Uh, The teaching of Jesus is always hard-hitting. So let's pray for God's help and let's praise him for his kingdom that awaits us. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came uh, not just to judge but to offer salvation first. Um, Thank you that we've had the opportunity to hear about the gospel. Please help us, each one of us, all of us, to trust in Jesus for ourselves and to know the assurance of sins forgiven and of the hope of eternal life and the future in your kingdom forever. Please fill our hearts with longing for that day. Please help our imaginations to be captivated by the day when we will be utterly satisfied, when our joy will not cease and when there won't be any limit to enjoying the good things you have to offer us. Please help us to long for that day, especially with so many good things around us in this world that would easily distract us. And please, Father, help us be devoted to that cause and save us from Satan's lie that would have us believe we can have both at once. Amen.